Section 1. The Argument. Chapter 1. Saving a Child. Read by Kristen Bell, an American actress and singer. On your way to work, you pass a small pond. On hot days, children sometimes play in the pond, which is only about knee-deep. The weather's cool today, though, and the hour is early. So, you are surprised to see a child splashing about in the pond. As you get closer, you see that it is a very young child, just a toddler, who's flailing about, unable to stay upright or walk out of the pond. You look for the parents or babysitter, but there is no one else around. The child is unable to keep her head above water for more than a few seconds at a time. If you don't wade in and pull her out, she seems likely to drown. Wading in is easy and safe, but you will ruin your new shoes you bought only a few days ago and get your suit wet and muddy. By the time you hand the child over to someone responsible for her and change your clothes, you'll be late for work. What should you do? I teach a course called Practical Ethics. When we start talking about global poverty, I ask my students what they think a person should do in this situation. Predictably, they respond that you should save the child. What about your shoes and being late for work, I ask them. They brush that aside. How could anyone consider a pair of shoes or missing an hour or two at work a good reason for not saving a child's life? I first told the story of the drowning child in the shallow pond in Famine, Affluence, and Morality, one of my first articles, originally published in 1972, but is still widely used in courses in ethics. In 2011, something resembling this hypothetical situation occurred in Foshan, a city in southern China. A two-year-old girl named Wang Yue wandered away from her mother and into a small street, where she was hit by a van that did not stop. A CCTV camera captured the incident. But what followed was even more shocking. As Wang Yue lay bleeding in the street, 18 people walked or rode their bikes right past her without stopping to help. In most cases, the camera showed clearly that they saw her, but then averted their gaze as they passed by. A second van ran over her leg before a street cleaner raised the alarm. Wang Yue was rushed to the hospital, but sadly, it was too late. She died. If you're like most people, you're probably saying to yourself right now, I wouldn't have walked past that child. I would have stopped to help. Perhaps you would have. But remember that, as we have already seen, 5.4 million children under five years old died in 2017, with a majority of those deaths being from preventable or treatable causes. Here is just one case, described by a man in Ghana to a researcher from the World Bank. Take the death of this small boy this morning, for example. The boy died of measles. We all know he could have been cured at the hospital, but the parents had no money, and so the boy died a slow and painful death. Not of measles, but out of poverty. Think about something like that happening hundreds of times every day. Some children die because they don't have enough to eat. More die from measles, malaria, and diarrhea, conditions that either don't exist in developed nations, or if they do, are almost never fatal. 
The children are vulnerable to these diseases because they have no safe drinking water or no sanitation, and because when they do fall ill, their parents can't afford any medical treatment or may not even be aware that treatment is needed. Oxfam, Against Malaria Foundation, Evidence Action, and many other organizations are working to reduce poverty or provide mosquito nets or safe drinking water. These efforts are reducing the toll. If these organizations had more money, they could do even more, and more lives would be saved. Now think about your own situation. By donating a relatively small amount of money, you could save a child's life. Maybe it would take more than the amount needed to buy a pair of shoes, but we all spend money on things we don't really need, whether on drinks, meals out, clothing, movies, concerts, vacations, new cars, or house renovations. Is it possible that by choosing to spend your money on such things rather than contributing to an effective charity, you are leaving a child to die, a child you could have saved? Poverty Today Before we get further into why we all ought to be doing more for people in extreme poverty, answer the following questions. 1. In the last 20 years, the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty has A. Almost doubled B. Remained the same or C. Halved What do you think? The correct answer is C. Almost halved. 2. How many of the world's one-year-old children today have been vaccinated against some disease? A. 20% B. 50% or C. 80% Can you believe the correct answer is C. 80%? 3. Where does the majority of the world's population live? A. Low-income countries B. Middle-income countries or C. High-income countries the answer is B, middle-income countries. How did you do? Over recent decades, the late Hans Rosling and the Gapminder Foundation have posed these and similar questions to thousands of people around the world as a part of the Gapminder Misconception Study. In Factfulness, Hans, his son, Ola Rosling, and his daughter-in-law, Anna Rosling Runland, share the surprising results of the tests. Here is a summary of some of the key findings. According to the World Bank, the proportion of the world's population living below the bank's extreme poverty line fell from 34% in 1993 to 10.7% in 2013. This suggests that it fell by two-thirds rather than just half, but because extreme poverty is very difficult to measure, the study used a conservative answer. In any case, this dramatic reduction is one of the greatest achievements in the history of our species. Yet few people know about it. On average, only 7% got one question right. In the U.S., the figure is even lower. 19 out of every 20 Americans who took the survey in the U.S. believed, falsely, either that the proportion of people in extreme poverty rate had not changed over the last 20 years, or that it had greatly increased. The result is similar for question two about vaccines. 
Almost all children are vaccinated in the world today, a phenomenon that the authors of Factfulness rightly label amazing. Again, very few people, only 13%, were aware of this important success in protecting the health of children all over the world. By now, you can probably guess that most people also get the third question from the Gapminder misconception study wrong. We have become used to dividing the world up into developed and developing countries, which leaves no space for the middle-income countries in which three-quarters of the world's population lives. If we add that to the people living in high-income countries, we reach 91%. That leaves only 9% living in low-income countries. And, of course, not all of them are in extreme poverty. But that's no ground for complacency, because large middle-income countries such as India and Nigeria have very unequal distributions of income, with many millions of people living in extreme poverty. As we shall see in Chapter 3, many people don't give to charities that seek to reduce extreme poverty because they believe that it is a hopeless task and that we are making no progress. This is why it's vital that more people learn about the impressive progress indicated by the answers to these questions. It's also essential that we listen to the people living in extreme poverty and find out what they are experiencing and what they would like to change. A few years ago, the World Bank asked researchers to do just that. They were able to document the experiences of 60,000 women and men in 73 countries. Over and over, in different languages and on different continents, poor people said what poverty meant to them and what poverty prevented them from doing. You are short of food for all or part of the year, often eating only one meal per day, sometimes having to choose between stilling your child's hunger or your own, and sometimes being able to do neither. You can't save money. If a family member falls ill and you need money to see a doctor, or if the crop fails and you have nothing to eat, you have to borrow from a local money lender and he will charge you so much interest as the debt continues to mount that you may never be free of it. You can't afford to send your children to school, or if they do start school, you have to take them out again if the harvest is poor. You live in an unstable house, made with mud or thatch, that you need to rebuild every two or three years or after severe weather. You have no nearby source of safe drinking water. You have to carry your water a long way, and even then, it can make you ill unless you boil it. But extreme poverty is not only a condition of unsatisfied material needs. It is often accompanied by a degrading state of powerlessness. Even in countries that are democracies, and are relatively well-governed, respondents to the World Bank survey described a range of situations in which they had to accept humiliation without protest. If someone takes what little you have, and you complain to the police, they may not listen to you, nor will the law necessarily protect you from rape or sexual harassment. You have a pervading sense of shame and failure because you cannot provide for your children. Poverty traps you, and you lose hope of ever escaping from a life of hard work for which, at the end, you will have nothing to show beyond bare survival.
The World Bank defines extreme poverty as not having enough income to meet the most basic human needs for adequate food, water, shelter, clothing, sanitation, health care, and education. Between 1990 and 2015, more than a billion people lifted themselves out of extreme poverty. As a result, it can be reasonably claimed that the global poverty rate is now lower than it has ever been in recorded history. Nevertheless, according to the most recently available data, 736 million still live on less than $1.90 a day, the global extreme poverty line set by the World Bank. In response to the $1.90 a day figure for determining who is in extreme poverty, the thought may cross your mind that in low-income countries, it is possible to live much more cheaply than in richer nations. Perhaps you've even done it yourself, backpacking around the world, living on less than you would have believed possible. So you may imagine that this level of poverty is less extreme than it would be if you had to live on that amount of money in, for example, the United States, France, or Spain. If such thoughts did occur to you, you should banish them now, because the World Bank has already made the adjustment in purchasing power. Its figures refer to the number of people existing today on a daily total consumption of goods and services, whether earned or homegrown, comparable to the amount of goods and services that can be bought in the United States for $1.90. In wealthy societies, most poverty is relative. People feel poor because many of the good things they see advertised on television are beyond their budget, but they do have a television. In the United States, 97% of those classified by the Census Bureau as poor own a color TV. Three quarters of them own a car. Three quarters of them have air conditioning. I'm not quoting these figures in order to deny that the poor in the United States face genuine difficulties. Nevertheless, for most, these difficulties are of a different order from those of the world's poorest people. The 736 million people living in extreme poverty are poor by an absolute standard tied to the most basic human needs. They are likely to be more hungry for at least part of the year. Even if they can get enough food to fill their stomachs, they will probably be malnourished because their diet lacks essential nutrients. In children, malnutrition stunts growth and can cause permanent brain damage. The poor may not be able to afford to send their children to school. Even basic and life-saving health care services are usually beyond their means. This kind of poverty kills. When a child born in Spain today can expect to live beyond 83 years, children born in countries such as Sierra Leone, Nigeria, and Chad have a life expectancy of less than 55 years. Sub-Saharan Africa continues to be the region with the highest under-5 mortality rate in the world. One child in 13 dies before his or her fifth birthday, a ratio 20 times higher than the 1 in 263 mortality rate in Australia and New Zealand. And to the UNICEF figure of 5.4 million young children dying every year, largely from preventable, poverty-related causes, we must add millions of older children and adults. All told, 
This means tens of thousands are dying each day. These are people who do not have to die. They could be saved, often by simple, inexpensive means. When I wrote the first edition of this book, South Asia had long been the region with the largest number of people living in extreme poverty, and India had more extremely poor people than any other country. In just a decade, however, that has all changed. Economic growth has reduced the number of South Asians living in extreme poverty from a half a billion in 1990 to 216.4 million in 2015. At that time, India was still the single country with the greatest number of people living in extreme poverty, 176 million, almost a quarter of the global extreme poor. That number was projected to continue to decline quite rapidly, however, and on some estimates, by 2019, there were more Nigerians than Indians in extreme poverty. The most dramatic reduction in poverty has been in East Asia and Pacific, where the extreme poverty rate has dropped astoundingly from 60% in 1990 to only 2.3% in 2015 although there are still nearly 10 million extremely poor Chinese and smaller numbers elsewhere in the region. The World Bank's 2018 report on poverty contained good news and bad news. The good news was that over the 25 years from 1990 to 2015, the percentage of the world's population living in extreme poverty rate dropped by an average of one point per year, from nearly 36% to 10%. The bad news was that this trend has slowed, with the rate dropping by only one percentage point between 2013 and 2015. The reason for the slowdown is that progress in reducing poverty is slower in Sub-Saharan Africa, the region where most of the world's extremely poor people now live, than in Asia. Sub-Saharan Africa is also the region with the highest proportion of people living in extreme poverty, about four in every 10 people. The World Bank reports that extreme poverty is increasingly becoming a sub-Saharan African problem and observes that of the world's 28 poorest countries, 27 are in sub-Saharan Africa, all with poverty rates above 30%. The Brookings Institution, an American research institute, adds that by 2023, Africa's share will rise to over 80%, up from 60 in 2016. For Africa to end poverty by 2030, more than one person would need to escape poverty every second. Instead, Africa currently adds poor people. Affluence Today In September 2018, for the first time in the history of our species, more than half of all humans alive were middle class or above. If we use that term to mean that they had enough income to do things like go to the movies, take vacations, buy consumer items like washing machines, or last through a period of illness or unemployment without becoming poor. Today, therefore, there are about 3.8 billion people living at a level of affluence never previously known, except in the courts of kings and nobles. Louis XIV, France's sun king, could afford to build Versailles, the most magnificent palace Europe had ever seen, 
but he could not keep it cool in summer as effectively as most people in high-income nations can keep their homes cool today. His gardeners, for all their skill, were unable to produce the variety of fresh fruits and vegetables that we can buy all year round. If he developed a toothache or fell ill, the best his dentists and doctors could do for him would make us shudder. We're not just better off than a French king who lived centuries ago. We are also much better off than our own great-grandparents. For a start, we can expect to live about 30 years longer. A century ago, one child in 10 died in infancy. Now, in most rich nations, that figure is less than 1 in 200. Another telling indicator of how wealthy we are today is the modest number of hours we must work in order to meet our basic needs. Today, Americans spend, on average, only 6.4% of their income on buying food. If they work a 40-hour week, it takes them barely two hours to earn enough to feed themselves for the week. That leaves far more to spend on consumer goods, entertainment, and vacations. And then we have the super-rich, people who spend their money on palatial homes, ridiculously large and luxurious boats, and private planes. In 2019, Forbes calculated that there were 2,153 billionaires in the world, nearly double as many as there were 10 years ago, and they keep getting richer, widening the gap between themselves and ordinary wage earners. To cater to such well-to-do people, in December 2018, Boeing business jets launched the BBJ-777X, a new Boeing business jet model based on the Boeing 777 that can fly more than halfway around the world without stopping. The price? $450 million for a green aircraft. And no, that doesn't mean one that has zero carbon emissions, it means the plane without the interior fitting. Adding the interior, which is designed to the customer's specifications, will cost another 25 to 50 million. In commercial service, this plane will seat 365 passengers. The private version might carry 35. Price aside, owning a really big airplane carrying a small number of people is a sure way to maximize your personal contribution to global warming. But for conspicuous waste of money and resources, it is hard to beat a luxury yacht. As Business Insider reported in 2017, it has become normal for the world's wealthiest individuals to drop millions, even billions, on lavish superyachts. Billionaires compete to be the owner of the largest private yacht, a title held at the moment by Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nahyan, the Emir of Abu Dhabi and owner of Azam, which, at 180 meters long, edged out the previous largest, Eclipse, owned by the Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich. Azam is estimated to have cost 400 million. It has accommodation for 36 guests. These superyachts are also highly polluting because they use huge amounts of diesel fuel. Azam's tanks hold a million liters of fuel, or 20,000 times as much as a typical small car and more than five times as much as a commercial airliner. 
While I was working on the first edition of this book, a special advertising supplement fell out of my Sunday edition of the New York Times, a 68-page glossy magazine filled with advertising for watches by Rolex, Patek Philippe, Breitling, and other luxury brands. The ads don't carry price tags, but a puff piece about the revival of the mechanical watch gave guidance about the lower end of the range. After admitting that inexpensive quartz watches are extremely accurate and functional, the article opined that there is, quote, something engaging about a mechanical movement. Right, but how much will it cost you to have this engaging something on your wrist? Quote, you might think that getting into mechanical watches is an expensive proposition, but there are plenty of choices in the $500 to $5,000 range. Admittedly, Quote, these opening price point models are pretty simple, basic movement, basic time display, simple decoration, and so on. From which we can gather that most of the watches advertised are priced upward of 5,000 or 100 times what anyone needs to pay for a reliable, accurate quartz watch. That there is a market for such products and one worth advertising at such expense to the wide readership of the New York Times is another indication of the affluence of our society. If you're shaking your head at the excesses of the super-rich, though, don't shake too hard. Think again about some of the ways Americans with average incomes spend their money. In most places in the United States, you can get your recommended eight glasses of water a day out of the tap for less than a penny. Yet millions of people regularly opt for store-bought where a typical bottle of water costs about $1.50 and some brands, such as Fiji, imported all the way from the Fiji Islands will set you back $2.25 or more. And in spite of the environmental concerns raised by the waste of energy that goes into producing and transporting bottled water, Americans are buying more and more of it, boosting the total to 13.7 billion gallons in 2017. Think, too, of the way many of us get our caffeine fix. You can make coffee at home for pennies rather than spending $4 or more on a latte. Or have you ever casually said yes to a waiter's prompt to order a second soda or glass of wine that you didn't even finish? When Dr. Timothy Jones, an archaeologist, led a U.S. government-funded study of food waste, he found that 14% of household garbage is perfectly good food that was in its original packaging and not out of date. More than half of this food was dry-packaged or canned goods that keep for a long time. Americans waste, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 30 to 40 percent of their food supply, or about $161 billion worth of food. People also buy an astonishing amount of clothing that they never wear. 200 pounds worth on average per person in the United Kingdom, according to one survey, while in the U.S., Fashion designer Deborah Lindquist claims that the average woman owns more than $600 worth of clothing that she has not worn in the last year. Whatever the actual figure may be, it is fair to say that almost all of us, men and women alike, buy things we don't need, some of which we never even use. Most of us are absolutely certain that we wouldn't hesitate to save a drowning child, 
and that we would do it at a considerable cost to ourselves. Yet while thousands of children die each day, we spend money on things we take for granted and would hardly notice if they were not there. Is that wrong? If so, how far does our obligation to the poor go?